The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we have another exciting guest for you this evening. But before we get to that guest, we'd just like to thank you guys for listening and making the podcast more successful. And as always, please share the show with your friends and please review it and tell us how you feel about the show. And of course, enjoy it. That's the most important thing. So this week's guest is Jennifer Batten. Jennifer Batten is an American guitarist who has worked as a session musician and solo artist from 1987 to 1997 she played on all three of michael jackson's world tours and from 1999 to 2001 she toured and recorded with jeff bay batten has released three studio albums her 1992 debut above below and beyond produced by former stevie wonder guitarist michael Sembello, the world beat influenced jennifer batten's tribal rage momentum 1997 and whatever which was released on cd and dvd in japan in 2007 and worldwide in 2008 the guitar shredder genre of the late 80s was comprised almost entirely of males with one exception was the fleet-fingered Jennifer Batten. The buzz and Jennifer Batten rose from the guitar underground and the guitar magazines promptly began chronicling her savvy musicianship and highly original approach to the electric guitar. A major turning point came when she was selected from over 100 guitarists to play in Michael Jackson's highly skilled band, which toured the world for one and a half years playing for over four and a half million people. In 2012, Sony released an exciting live Wembley Stadium show DVD as part of their bad 25th anniversary pack. Jennifer wasted no time after the bad tour's grand finale diving to work on her debut album with renowned producer and ex-Stevie Wonder guitarist Michael Sembello. In the spring of 1992 she was asked again to join Michael Jackson for his upcoming Dangerous Tour. In January 1993 she joined Jackson to partake in the Super Bowl's halftime entertainment which aired to one and a half billion people in 80 nations. It was the largest audience in television history. Her follow-up CD Momentum which was heavily influenced by world music was released just before she left for Michael Jackson's final global tour in support of his History CD in 1997. In the spring of 98, Jeff Beck asked Jennifer to join his band. They joined forces for three years on the CDs, Who Else and You Had It Coming, which were both supported by World Tours. Jennifer played with Jeff Beck for over 10 years. Jennifer has authored two music books and has released three solo CDs venturing from world beat and rock and roll to electronica. The last CD, Whatever, is also accompanied by a 90-minute DVD, which includes some of the visuals from her one-woman multimedia show, where she plays guitar in sync with her self-made projected films, as well as unreleased music videos and a guitar lesson. During 2011, she did a guitar residency for the Cirque du Soleil's show Zumanity in Las Vegas. In the last few years, she joined forces with TrueFire.com to record instructional DVDs, downloads. She continues to tour the globe in various formats, from bands to solo shows to clinics and masterclasses. In January 2016, she received the She Rocks Icon Award and was also inducted into Guitar Player Magazine's Gallery of the Greats. Welcome to the show, Jennifer Batten. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on and I always remember through my own guitar playing, seeing your face pop up so many times and you're such a great inspiration to guitar players. And I know, of of course, you're a great inspiration to female guitar players. But even I remember when and my journey looking at you and your career was a great inspiration. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. No, you're welcome. So tell us at the moment, what's kind of happening with you? Are you touring? Are you taking a break? You know, I have a deliciously long break and I'm I'm planning to 
put together some new courses for truefire.com. That's instructional download stuff. So I'm, I'm getting all inspired about doing that at the moment. Um, last year was just bonkers. I, I'm trying not to travel so much. And as soon as I put that out into the universe, um, I got nothing but flights. Oh. <laughs> And I actually saw one of your posts on one of your social media about all the millions of miles you've done. So that's an interesting concept, isn't it? How many miles you can do in that career? I know. It was shocking because I've never added it up. I've never added how many shows I've done. I, I have no clue. I'm just always looking forward. But they, they had that automated data that they collected and sent out. And I go, holy crap, it really is time for me to stop doing this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I can imagine on tour, you know, the, the miles would kind of build up very quickly. But in the past, maybe you wouldn't keep track of that. You'd say, oh, I must have done thousands of miles in the last few months. But with a lot of modern technology, it tells you exactly how many steps you've taken and how many miles you've traveled and flown. We are all being tracked on all levels. The sad thing is we're tracking ourselves as well. That's what's worse, you know? Yeah, yeah, voluntarily, yeah. Voluntarily. So tell us then, Jennifer, as a, you said, you're on a bit of a break at the moment. So are you preparing for kind of upcoming tours or are you just enjoying yourself and not feeling any pressure from upcoming things? I, I do have a bunch of stuff upcoming in late spring into the fall. And who knows, it could go from the fall to winter again, too. So, you know, I I like the balance. I like to work. But when I've worked too much, I, I need a break and I relish the breaks as well. But then in, in the breaks, I get nervous and go, oh, when is the work coming? <laughs> get that kind of cabin fever where you want to get out again, don't you? Less and less. You know, people ask me where I would go on a vacation and I say my back porch. You just need to get away from it, but then you can be itching to get back. And it's nice to come home, though, regardless of everything, isn't it? It's nice to come home. Uh, definitely. I need it. And strangely enough, it, it's funny. I can be in hotel rooms for months on end and... When I come home, I wake up and don't know where I am. It's like the, the subconscious okay. just completely relaxes because they know that you don't have to be anywhere. They, like all them in there. <laughs> <laughs> all the voices. <laughs> oh, there are many. Somebody said recently, I have voices in my head and some of them have split personalities. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I think those voices, good and bad, keep us going, though, you know, because it's um, the thing about it is nowadays you have to just look after your head, don't you? And wherever that may be. But if you come home, sometimes then you want to get away, but you have to enjoy it while you're there. That's the most important. Yeah, being present, is the key to life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what I want to do, you know, we like to go back in time a little, obviously, before even a lot of your success and kind of trace the origins of your career and your journey, so to speak. And so as a, you know, a young girl, you kind of were, you started playing guitar, I think, at eight years old, and you were inspired by your sister and your the Beatles and Jeff Beck and so many people. Was that something that even as an eight year old, you had been building up to? like for a few years that you were dabbling in different instruments or is it something that just happened overnight? You know, my father especially was really, really into music. He was never a professional, but he, he played guitar and had a, a little jazz band in his town, or a very small town. So the funeral director was the drummer and the school music teacher was the piano player, that kind of thing. But he collected jazz records his entire life. And Anytime he was home, that music would be playing. So that was the environment. And then as my friends got into pop music and we'd listen to AM radio, I think, early on, 
and my sisters, my older sisters were really into Motown. Um, it was just really intriguing. And I remember there was a, maybe a cousin of mine or a friend of a friend that played guitar. And I remember him playing at a party and just being gobsmacked. Like that is the most glorious sound I've ever heard in my life. So I wanted to get into it. And then my sister got a guitar for her birthday or Christmas. And I was so jealous. I thought, ah, she gets everything. I get nothing. <laughs> How much older was she? Four years. Oh, four years. Okay. I, I remember both my sisters had an intervention at one time because they didn't think the music I was listening to was hip enough. And they band together to get me a Crosby, Stills and Nash record. <laughs> <laughs> more laid back god only knows what i was listening to before then but i i got a guitar and started lessons right away when i was eight so that started the journey is that something you know as an eight-year-old picking up the guitar is that something that your parents kind of said oh we'll we'll just kind of buy a, a few guitar books or we'll get her a course or we'll, we, there's a local teacher in the area how did you kind of start your journey that way yeah it was a local teacher that started me with, um, I think, a Mel Bay book, which is a common starter book, oh, yes. to, to learn the notes on the first three frets across the strings and play very simple melodies and learn how to read the notes. So that, that took me through, um, well, I, I started at eight and we moved to California when I was nine from New York. And so I, I ended up with different teachers because we moved a few times. And I remember the, the next teacher was part of a group called Up With People that was folk music. And they would once a month, once a week or once a month, they would get together and there was a common songbook. So there would be maybe 15 guitar players playing the same thing, staring at the sheet music and trying to play the same chords together. And then the next teacher was into blues and the next guy was into rock. So I, I had a, a great variety to, to learn from and eventually went to Musicians Institute, which at the time was only guitar music. And that's what really kicked my ass into gear. Okay. Yeah. Because I imagine too, at that time when, you know, for, as you were going, you know, picking up the guitar and you were becoming 10 and 11, 12 and so on, as you're getting older, you were looking around you and people were listening to fairly kind of typical things, but you probably had to look a bit deeper to find guitar music. Well, it found me, actually. Uh, gosh, I want to say I was 16 or I might have been younger if my sister was driving, but we, we would typically get our driver's licenses when we were 16. And I remember hearing Jeff Beck on the radio, instrumental music, and that just floored me. It was music from Blow by Blow, which was the biggest selling instrumental record for at least three decades. So that really resonated with me and obviously planted a seed that lasted a lifetime. When you use that kind of analogy, it planted the seed and that, that tree grew. But then little did you know that it would bring you back to the orchard to be to play with Jeff Beck, which was an amazing thing, because I imagine that first moment when you met Jeff Beck and so on. But, you know, even that whole journey it's very surreal, isn't it? To, to, to start off and have someone like that you're hearing and looking up to and then end up full circle back there. I did not expect that in a million years at all. I just wanted an autograph and that was the only thing on my bucket list for my life. Um, I, there was a guy named Rory Kaplan that was a keyboard player on the bad tour with Michael Jackson. And I was talking about Jeff one day and he had told me that he had done some teching when Jeff and Jan Hammer were playing and he said he'd introduce us and then the bastard never did. So I thought, 
you know, I, I kept running into people that met him. I would be at a NAM show where, did you see Jeff? He was here 10 minutes ago. And I would be tearing my hair out going, oh my God, no, I never saw him. Uh, I, I remember taking a cassette recorder into the arms festival concerts, the, the charity for Ronnie Lane. And Jeff did a set with Jan Hammer there. And I, I remember looking around, there's got to be a limo around here. He's got to be at a nearby hotel, not knowing that he would check in with an alias. I learned many years later. Yeah, it was a long time coming before I finally met him and got an autograph. And um, at that time, I my first record had come out. So I gave him a copy of the CD. And also I did a video for Flight of the Bumblebee. That was a track on the first CD. And the Headbangers Ball in UK was playing it. And I did an interview. And so they, they gave me a copy of the, the interview along with the video. And it was a format we can't use in America. So I gave a copy to Jeff and I thought that that's it. I'll probably never see him again. And he called up a month later and said, I finally had a chance to listen to your record. Let's do a record together. And I, of course, just immediately peed myself. <laughs> and, you know, it's quite interesting because, you know, you probably are more well known for playing with Michael Jackson because of his profile. But one of the most amazing things is like you played for so much longer with Jeff Beck and... It was a different show, wasn't it? And a different style, a different style of playing. I know you were playing a lot of fast riffs and shredding, but it was it was more technical in aspects. And you were this sidekick to an amazing guitar player. You're an amazing guitar player, but you were also like playing with an amazing guitar player. So a different show, wasn't it? It was 180 degrees different. With Michael, it was of course all pop tunes, and everybody in the audience knew all the lyrics to all the songs and there would be Jackson impersonators in the front row doing all the moves with the glove and the whole nine yards <laughs> and moonwalking and everything. And there, there were so many cues that the songs had to be in the same order every night because there was dangerous pyrotechnics, uh, costume changes. And we worked out that show for two months. I mean, there was no question about what's the next chord in the in the bridge. It was 100% nailed by the time we did the first show. And with Jeff, it's about improv. And whereas Michael wanted it the same every night, Jeff wanted it different. He wanted things to fire him up and send him off in different directions. And I had a hell of a lot more responsibility with him because, uh, gosh, on the Jackson tour, there was two guitars and two keyboard players. On Jeff, I was it. I was I was triggering a, a lot of keyboard synthesizer with the guitar, as well as playing some guitar and a, a few solos. That's hard work. Ah, uh, well, it didn't feel like hard work because I was so deep in it and so thankful that he thought I was worthy of it. That I just worked my ass off and just spent really twenty four seven working for him and writing tunes. And um, I, I'll tell you a little story. You know, I was already crapping myself about being in the band and his manager drove me down to his house uh, for the first time. And he, he announced that usually in Jeff's bands, the, the musical director is the keyboard player. And since I was going to be triggering keyboard sounds, I was now the musical director. So, you know, it's just absolute overload. Like, oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> just shows you though he had great faith in you because if someone said to anybody oh that person's going to be the musical director if they didn't have the faith in them they'd say well no 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 let's make him or her or whoever but it just showed that he when so even if he didn't think of it if someone had suggested it he just went no problem she's she's great so that was a that was another compliment to you 
Well, he was the kind of guy that uh, jump and the net will appear. He's got an idea. He's going to go for it. And somehow it's going to work out. And I think most of the time it did. I have to say, obviously, because you, you knew him, our condolences to you as well as being a friend of his, because it's, it's very sad, uh, his passing. And it's left a huge hole in, in the guitar playing world and in the music world in general, hasn't it? Uh, it's, it's a crater that will never be filled. Yes. Because, you know, nowadays there are less guitar heroes than before. There's a lot of great modern guitar players, but I mean, there's guitar players that have legacy. We grew up with them and we saw them. And, and now, you know, over time, then those those guitar players are slowly going away and it's a shame because as you said that that craters those craters are not being filled in well he was one of those guys that never stopped discovering things on the guitar you know they talk about the the legacy of the british holy trilogy or trinity with eric and jimmy page and jeff and it really should have brian may in there as well but th those guys all carved their sound in the late 60s 70s and stayed there you know, they might come up with new songs and new material, but Jeff is the one that, boy, I mean, his sound just kept improving to the point where he would come up with these wicked sounds. And it was like watching a magician. I mean, you, you could go to a show and have the giant LED screen right on his hands and still go, how the hell is he doing that? Where does that sound come from? And he had that inimitable style where People can try to imitate him, but it's kind of, you know, like when they used to say about Eddie Van Halen and the brown sound and so on. And then, you know, they say the, the sound is in the fingers and the feelings in the fingers. But with Jeff Beck, he had such a different style that even if you were like you mentioned earlier, the Michael Jackson impersonators, if you were a Jeff Beck impersonator, yeah. like even you could have it 99 percent, but it's still not Jeff Beck because he had that improvisation and that freedom and things could change, couldn't they? Yeah. And also nobody had the same history, you know, growing up, listening to American blues on a shitty radio and just trying to grab what you could and being completely immersed in the whole rockabilly thing. And, you know, if you're born in the 80s, you just don't have that. You, you can go back into the history books and and listen. But yeah, I mean, it was just such a huge star, shooting star and a massive personality every little nuance of the note choices and the timing of the phrasing and notes it, it, nobody else is going to have that can i go back then as well and let's say just i want to kind of delve into your technique but not your kind of later technique more your early technique so when you were you know learning guitar and did you find you gravitated like was because you had like an electric guitar i think it was so did you gravitate to more towards electric songs or did you try finger style acoustic guitar what kind of area were you focusing on as you got better well in, in the beginning it's whatever the teachers presented for me like i had a, a blues teacher um and, and, you know, it's funny, once you're older, people say, do you have any regrets? And everybody says, no, everything is as it should be. And I thought, hell no. If I had the digital technology that we have now, when I was 12 and 14, I would be a completely different player. Uh, back then, there was, this, you know, learning the blues was just, of course, records, which is the, the primo place to get any 
information, but the the books were kind of lame back then and transcriptions were not accurate. So I I just did what I could. And then once I discovered that I could take that needle on the record back and forth and back and forth 5,000 times and drive my family up a wall and transcribe stuff, then I was in another world of improvement. Right. Okay. Okay. And you know, when you, you mentioned there that you went to the Guitar Institute. So when you went there and you were put into this pool of amazing musicians, I imagine, did that open up a whole other world of possibilities as to where your playing could go? Absolutely. At that time, it was the third class the school ever had. And all of the teachers were jazz. So all three of them, there was Joe Diorio, real steeped in bebop, um, he played with Sonny Stitt and uh, Ron Eshte was another bebopper. And then Don Mock was more into fusion, like Mahavishnu Orchestra. And that was it for the three teachers. And that's where we really learned the tools of music and improv and taking our reading to another level. Tommy Tedesco, who was a, a massive studio guy, like first call in L.A. to to read. He was an incredible reader. He would come at least once or twice a month and and bring his uh his work stuff that he had just recorded and have us play along with him and then show us treacherous things that could happen to make you fail and he did a wonderful thing he didn't you know he, he was kind of a punk he had because he was first call everybody knew him and he brought two students at a time to his sessions and didn't ask permission it's just bam we were there you got two seats to sit next to him, and that scared the living shit out of me. I, I went when they were recording the orchestra to um, the Roots movie part two, and you know, nine hundred bars would go by, and then he had to come in, and it would be so easy to lose count and just trash the whole session. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you couldn't drift off during that because you you have to keep counting, and uh, yeah, that's that's quite difficult, isn't it? But I I mean, it's amazing how some of these i was watching a video the other day of aldemiola and he was like showing before his his shows he does like two hours of uh reading you know music reading notes and playing the guitar and it's like he said this is my form of meditation so some people are just amazing at this and it's you know it's great to see but it's sometimes for other people are like how do they do that so well you know yeah Let's just say everybody has their skill sets, and typically guitar players are horrible readers. Exactly. I put a lot of effort into it, but you wouldn't want to hire me to do a high-pressure studio gig reading. So for some people, it's their thing, and for others, it's not, you know. So when you were in the Guitar Institute then, you were discovering, like, what kind of style you were gravitating towards. And then your, you know, your kind of famous two-handed tapping technique then. So you kind of fell into that, and... Was that something that you were experimenting with? And or like I know you had some collaboration and stuff. So was that something that you thought, oh, this is something different. I can do something with this. Yeah, the way that came about is once a month when I was at guitar school, they would bring in uh, a really heavy player. Like one month it was Pat Metheny, Lee Rittenauer, Larry Carlton, the guys that were doing sessions in town there. And one month it was Emmett Chapman who invented the Chapman stick that Tony Levin is most famous for playing it with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel. And so he came in and he was playing the stick and telling us how the the stick worked. And there was 60 people total in two classes. And I we all gathered together for the seminars. And I think we just looked around going, 
you know, we're just trying to get these six strings down. None of us are going to take a whole new instrument with a whole new technique and a whole new tuning. You know, <laughs> thanks for coming in, but no thanks. Overkill. Yeah, but it planted a seed in the mind of Steve Lynch, who was a fellow classmate. And he went on to record with a band called Autograph that had a hit in the 80s called Turn Up the Radio. And he started experimenting with two-hand tapping. And I would check in on him and see what he was doing every once in a while. And it just blew my mind. And I knew I wanted to learn it, but the school was so intense. I didn't have any extra time to learn extracurricular stuff, but uh, he played a, a beautiful solo he had written at graduation. And I knew, I, I think I already set up to get a lesson with him after class was over. In fact, he sent me a demo of, I think, three songs he had worked on. And I was trying to learn it, not knowing what to do, but I used one finger in the right hand and got a blister and it sounded terrible. So I booked a lesson with him. And that's when he was working on a series, what turned out to be a series of books called The Right Touch. And the books weren't out for another probably six months or a year, but he showed me the basics of what he was doing. And that set me straight. So I was able to go off on my own and start experimenting. And it was simultaneous with the release of the first Van Halen. Uh, but it was that record was so new that Steve's technique was completely different from Eddie's. Right. And, you know, this is the interesting thing about tapping in general, because, you know, when you look back through time, there was guys tapping in, in other styles and in jazz and different things. But maybe they weren't tapping in all of their songs or it was in some songs. But of course, Eddie Van Halen brought it to the mainstream. But like you said, you had yourself and Steve Lynch. So there was other pioneers of this doing it in different ways. But as always is the case, the pioneers aren't the ones who sometimes become successful. It's somebody else who might have started it later, but it's whoever gets mainstream, isn't it? Sure it is. And and Eddie never said he invented it, but what he did with it was groundbreaking. And I remember hearing stories at the time that, you know, Randy Rhodes was playing the same clubs that Van Halen was, and David Lee Roth knew that the tapping thing was going to explode as something really special. So he made Eddie turn his back to the audience when he did it. And, uh, you know, Randy was in the audience and figured it out and had his own version of it. But it's a great thing, I think, inspiration, because when you can look at players, your peers, and you can see what they're doing, and then even maybe develop your own style, it's great to be inspired to see someone at a show and then say, oh, that's amazing. And not to copy it, and, but just to say, okay, that helps me on my journey because there's something I'm trying to do, and now I can incorporate bits of that, can't I? You know, bringing up inspiration. I've noticed that, you know, everybody loves compliments after you do a show, of course. And I noticed in the probably the last 15 years that inspiration is comes up over and over again when people come up to me after a show. And I'm most proud of that because when I go to see people play, I want to be inspired. That's a tad bit of success there. <laughs> I think what it is, sometimes even I can be doing a podcast with someone and their story or their career as I'm talking to them, it gives you that flow of inspiration. And you could maybe go and say, I'm going to go and write a song or play a riff or start. So I think inspiration is a great thing. And we can all be procrastinators. We can all be lazy. We can have moments when we could push ourselves further and maybe we don't. And it's nice then sometimes to see somebody else working, doing the work and has done the work. And then it goes, OK, well, I can do that, too. And it just pushes you a little bit, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. That's a great thing. I was just telling somebody the other day, I, I was doing a workshop years ago, and there was a guy in the audience that was asking questions afterwards, and he said, what do you do for motivation? And I, you know, I gave him a few answers, and he kept coming back, but what if I still don't have motivation? And I thought, man, this is probably not the direction you want to go then. If, if music itself is not inspiring you, then there's something wrong, because that's where the fuel is. Hearing, hearing other people uh, that knock you out, I mean, that, that can fuel you for a long time. And like Jeff Beck, that's fueled me for a lifetime. Yeah, that was like the biggest shot of adrenaline. Indeed, yeah. So let's talk then, obviously, you know, the, the thing you cannot avoid in your career. I know you've been asked about it millions of times, but playing with Michael Jackson then. So you were doing your thing and you were probably playing on the local scene and you were and then this opportunity came up for the audition. And I know you prolonged it a little because you wanted to get better. You know, you wanted to leave it to the last moment. So what was your thinking with that? Like, did they say, oh, you have, you know, there's auditions for four days or five days. and you, which day do you want to come? And you thought, I'm going to take as long as I can. Yeah, yeah. And I, I canceled everything that I had going, uh, which at that time was mostly lessons. I don't think I canceled any gigs. And I just stayed home. I bought my first CD player because they were very new at the time in 1987. So I thought I could hear things more clearly. And I, I learned, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen of the top hits that had been on the radio. And then when I went in, uh, there was no band. It was just me and a video camera. And the only guidance I was given was to play some funky rhythm because that, that would, even though I'm known for the 16 bars of playing the Beat It solo, uh, you know, there's another two hours of the show <laughs> that, that is part groove and chords and stuff. So I remember I had, I had been showing my students, I was teaching at Musicians Institute at the time that I got the gig and I was teaching some, some funky thing I made up to my students. And so I played that to start out the audition. Then I did some random improv and a lot of tapping. Um, I had recorded three songs for my debut record that were in demo form. And one of them was a, a tapping solo I worked out for Coltrane's Giant Steps. So I played that on the audition. And then I had already been playing Beat It for, gosh, I think Thriller came out in 84, I think. So I was playing it in a cover band ever since it came out. So I finished my audition with that. And 20 years later, the guy, there was somebody making a documentary about female guitar players, and the guy behind that contacted the guy that videoed my audition and got a hold of that. So that's the first time I saw it ever. And there was a note in with it with a list of names, and next to my name, Michael Jackson had put a star and wrote great with exclamation points. I thought, man, that is so cool to see that all these years later. And people often ask uh, why he hired me, and I, you know, I never asked. <laughs> he must have heard something that he liked. And I will say, that he changed my look radically. So it, it certainly wasn't the way I looked that was his that he chose. He he transformed me. He had a an artist come in and draw up um, three looks for every performer on stage, and then hired makeup artists and wardrobe people to make the paintings come to life. Did you know when you went to the audition? Like, was it kind of uh, obvious there was guitar players leaving or coming in before or after you? Did you meet the other guitar players, or did you know hear of any names? The only guy I don't know if I knew this in advance, but I knew Greg Wright auditioned, and he had played with the Jacksons in the Victory Tour. But they they had it scheduled in maybe fifteen twenty minute slots. So no, I I didn't see another guitar player come or go, and I had no idea how many they were auditioning. And I heard okay. much later that okay. it was a hundred people. So I feel pretty damn lucky. 
and just to get into then the technical thing of the audition, did you just go in with your guitar and they had amps set up or how was the whole kind of sound for you when you were auditioning? You know, I honestly don't remember. I, I think they did have amps there, but I, I hate leaving that to chance. So knowing me, I probably brought my own stuff. And that can be, I suppose, like in that case can be nerve wracking too, because, you know, for musicians, a lot of the time starting with new bands or auditioning, the worst thing that can happen, you have your own nerves about the songs and, the, you know, what you're playing. But then if your equipment starts failing you or you have glitches, that just adds to it, doesn't it? Oh, of course. And that, that's, that's why I really don't like sitting in. Because playing other people's equipment is, it can be a nightmare and it has been. <laughs> I have experienced a few nightmares and PTSD yeah. from that that I'll never forget. Yeah, because we all know our own sound and we know our own amp settings and you you just know, even if it's an amp you're playing with tubes or without tubes or you're a digital head, you know, you, you know your sound and you're comfortable with it. So it takes it up to another level of discomfort if you have to take another style guitar or, you know, and even I know myself because I'm kind of taller and sometimes you'd sit in with a band and the guy'd have a small little guitar strap and you'd be <laughs> you'd be he'd be a small guy. Well, I had the opposite. It was always the opposite for me. When I put on a guy's guitar, the damn thing was down to my knees. Okay, yeah. You were like trying to loosen it, but it wouldn't go up any higher. Yeah, uh, it was a slice of hell. Then going on, I know like you did the three Jackson World Tours and in that 10 years or so. So in you were doing a tour and then you went and did your solo stuff, your own solo records. Was that something then that not derailed, but just delayed your own solo stuff too? Or did it actually give you a chance to work on it more? I would say it joyfully delayed my career. <laughs> you know? Joyfully. Uh, yeah, I, it was the most exciting thing in the world. Uh, and a, what a wonderful way to see the world. And we only, you know, touring is extremely expensive. And there was 100 people in the entourage that was moving from city to city. And because it took so long to, to uh, build the stages, uh, we had the band had lots of time off. We only played two or three days a week. So we were in Rome. We'd go to the Coliseum one day, go to the Forum the next, play a show, and then take a bus overnight to the next place. Uh, we'd end up in Geneva, maybe, or Bern, and everybody'd get out and get their Swiss Army knives. And, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And you mentioned earlier there that, you know, it was a lot of tracks and, you know, some, when you're playing in that set, it's very, everything's cued, everything's to sync. And, you know, they have a musical director who is kind of on top of you to keep everything in sync, whereas with other shows, it's more free. So was that something that over the years then that you just grew to get much better at? Or did you think, oh, I'm sick of just playing to cues and sync. No, um, honestly, there weren't that many tracks. There was a lot of live triggering. There was a, a sync clavier back then that had samples. And <clears throat> Ricky Lawson, the drummer, had racks of gear where he was triggering drum samples that were from the records. So that it was when they were setting up, when we were rehearsing, there was racks of gear for the keyboard players. And it, it looked like something at NASA where these engineers were dialing in the whole time trying to get the sounds from the records. Uh, no, I didn't have a problem with that at all. You know, in fact, it was it was kind of made it easier that you knew always what was coming next. And everything was so second nature and so well rehearsed that it, it made you calm. There, there was not going to be any grenades thrown in <laughs> like, boom, we're going to do this song that you haven't played with us. <laughs> you know, that didn't happen except for at soundcheck. 
like every single day. Greg Fillingaines could play any song there was, and he didn't like to repeat himself that much. So we were, me and John Clark were always jumping at soundcheck. You know, the thing about Michael Jackson's career, because he, he liked to bring in high profile guitar players, you know, whether it was Slash or Eddie Van Halen and stuff. So then when, when that goes to tours, then are they kind of saying to the guitar player, you know, okay, keep it the same or you can have a little bit of freedom with it? You know, with, with a solo like Beat It, I didn't want to mess with it. I wanted to play exactly what Eddie did because it was such a stellar solo. I, I couldn't do better than that. Uh, there were other solos that I played. It, it depend on what I, I was. I went out on three different tours, so there was different sets every time. But there was I was the lucky one in that, especially starting with the Dangerous tour, I, I got space to improvise. And so that was a, a bit different every night. And I would just kind of play off of Michael and, and he with me. And when he was done hearing me, he would, you know, make moves that kind of signaled for me to wrap it up and then we'd continue with the song. So I felt pretty lucky. Yeah, I saw that in some videos where he kind of, if someone didn't hit their mark or they went over or he didn't want them, he kind of would let you know. He had his own way of letting you know. He was absolutely in charge. And I remember there was, especially on the, on the Bad Tour, there was one song where he would do this James Brown kind of thing where, give me, give me two hits. And he would hold up fingers. Um, and we would do it in rehearsal. And there was one time where he held up three fingers and we only did two hits. And he goes, you got to watch me. You got to watch me because it's not going to be the same every night. So everybody had to have their eyes on him at all times. And it was great training. Yeah, because, you know, when you consider people like Michael Jackson and Prince and Bob Dylan and these who, ha you know, have these big bands sometimes with them, you kind of sometimes people might say, oh, it's, it's hard work because they're very demanding. But I suppose that's what makes a great show. And over time, you learn the, the level you have to be at, don't you? You know, you have to be on point for everything. Absolutely. And we heard like the band rehearsed for a, a solid month before we even met him. And of course, he's going to expect the top thing. He's the top artist in the world. And unlike the This Is It video, um, when we met him, we had everything completely nailed. Uh, you know, there was no Greg Fillingaines going, how does the way you make me feel go? That that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We had it, and we heard, heard that if he was happy with what he was hearing, he would start dancing right away, and he did. So we were on the right path for sure. And, you know, during those rehearsals then for those live shows, would Michael Jackson have a stand-in to do all the rehearsals, or would he be in every rehearsal? Uh, in the Bad Tour, he was he worked his ass off. He was there every single day, very long hours, and after the rehearsals he would be looking at the videotapes of the rehearsals and have notes for the musical director for the next day and there was a period of time i remember that we would be changing the key to thriller every day because you know it's one thing to sing in a certain key when that's all you're doing is singing in a studio but to be able to sing and put out the energy of dance like he did he took the keys down of a lot of songs um and he also took the tempo up on a lot of songs to make them more exciting. Like you take the tempo of working day and night from the original on the record to the speed we were doing it live and it's night and day crazy. And and I often think that if he didn't have musicians at the skill level of a Greg Fillingaines and Ricky Lawson, you lose the groove if if you take the tempo up so fast. And a lot of the the tribute bands want to do it like it was live. And I just tell them, just don't, <laughs> just don't, because it ain't funky anymore. 
<laughs> don't go there. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and it's when you say they would change them, would they do all of that? Would he change the keys in pre-production before the tour started? And have, let's say, for example, you have a song like, you know, the, the way you make me feel. And would he? Would you know, okay, this song we can do it in four different keys. Is Would you have that kind of prepared in advance or it would happen during the tour? No, it was all well worked out in advance. Like we we got a solid two months, at least five days a week to work the stuff out. Wow, that's it's amazing. So then after that, you know, and that was an incredible experience working with Michael. And then, you know, for your solo things, then did you know what style you wanted to go with? You know, were you thinking an instrumental album or to have singers and stuff? And did working with Michael Jackson and those other musicians change the, how your album was going to be? Like, because I can imagine when you're on such a world breaking tour, then you get other ideas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think my... I think my choices were a lot more commercial than they would have been. Um, having said that, it's you know it's a guitar record. It's not a pop record by any stretch. Yeah, of course. But yeah, it definitely had an influence, and I think it also had an influence in how I, I thought about myself on stage. Where with Michael, the music was only the foundation. That's it. Then he would build a show on top of it with dance, with lasers, pyro, bombs, you know, video. And I eventually, after I'd worked with Michael for 10 years and after Jeff Beck for three years, I, I put together a solo show. And I thought, boy, it's, it's not going to entertain people past five minutes to just watch me standing there playing. So I started doing a video show. And I'm sure that's directly from being with Michael Jackson, realizing that people need a lot more entertainment than just the music. Of course, yeah. You have to have a, a more complete package a lot of the time. When you, from that whole experience, then working with Michael and then your own record coming out, did you know, for example, doing the solo stuff, I want to keep doing this on my own or I want to see how it goes? Or did you kind of think, you know, when the Michael Jackson thing was finishing up, I want to go back playing with another artist like that? Um, You know, I was burnt out. After three tours with him, I was really burnt out. And I had the opportunity to audition for Diana Ross. And I thought, you know, at first I thought, wow, that's exciting. And then I thought, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, compared to Michael, it would just be a snore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to pursue my own career and see what I could do with that. And it wasn't six months later that Jeff Beck called. And I remember in one of the calls, uh, I said, man, I, I was looking at getting out of the music business. And he goes, well, can you wait? <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. He was like, well, you can, I'm not ready for you to go because I have plans for you. Exactly. Thank God. One issue as well that I think is still, it's very prevalent these days with every kind of thing to do with, you know, males and females is that time you had a lot of kind of jealousy and a lot of sexism as regards you getting that gig. And I think that's something that's hard to deal with because it's kind of undercurrents, isn't it? People don't even have to say things sometimes. It's just you get the vibe, don't you? Oh, yeah. Even one of my best friends, uh, well, my boyfriend at the time, for fuck's sake, he was he was jealous as hell. He, he was a drummer. I don't think I've ever shared this, but oh, really? okay. uh, between legs of a, I think it was the bad tour, we went down from L.A. to my parents' house in San Diego, and I brought down a live video that we had shot in Japan. And my family was sat around watching it. And my boyfriend got up and left and drove back to LA because he couldn't handle that I was getting the attention and the success. I mean, that's, that's real close to home. 
But yeah, there's, I would hear rumors from, from people. In fact, there's a story of sexism at his prime. I did a, a session at one time. I was flown into Chicago to do a, a song with Angela Bofield. And uh, Hiram Bullock was another guitar player that she hired. And she hired him to do rhythm guitar and hired me to do the lead. And when Angela introduced me to Hiram, she said, this is Jennifer Batten. She plays with Michael Jackson, or she was on the Bad Tour or something like that. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, so it was a looks thing. And I thought, you bastard, you haven't even heard one note that I can play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I have that. That's the problem, isn't it? Because if somebody kind of, you know, we, we know in the world there's lots of things like nepotism. People get jobs because of who they're related to. And that's kind of happens. Like, but sometimes when you get a job based on your skill, people don't want to believe it's just that. So then they say, oh, you're a good looking girl. It must be because of that. And that's a shame, really. But it's just that's people reaching because they know they've nothing else. Now, check this out. That triggered another memory that shocked the living shit out of me. Uh, Michael's manager introduced me to Tina Turner, who came to one of Michael's shows. And the only thing she said to me was, how'd you get the gig? And I thought, you got to be kidding me. And, and and she was reaching into her history of how people got the gig with Ike, you know, and I just I was stunned. I, I couldn't say anything. Uh, but it was it was really disappointing. I think the thing that we realized after years is that sometimes the sexism sexism was not only from the men because you had sometimes female powerhouses in the industry, whether they be singers or executives, and they were so programmed and so conditioned to the sexism that they looked at like, how did she get the gig? It must be because of this, or it must be, and that that's yeah. a shame because you don't expect it from a woman, do you? No, and you know, I just started telling people it's because I knew Bubbles the Chimp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's taught me everything I know. <laughs> so let's move on then. And as you said, when you went after that six months, and you went to play with Jeff, you know, and you you kind of did the whole sync and the keyboards and all of that. That was a, a totally different gig, as you said, because. It was a lot more freeform playing and you could improvise and random things would happen. But as regards, let's say, rehearsals and things like this, was it a case that you'd get together and do rehearsals or you kind of had to go and learn all your own stuff and then, you know, meet up every so often? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when we first got together, the original band was supposed to be Terry Bozio and um, Tony Levin on bass. And I... I was absolutely shocked because I thought there was going to be a keyboard player there. And we spent two days at SIR in New York just jamming. And it turned out Jeff thought this was the new thing. It was just going to be me. And I thought, holy hell, you know, 30 years of his records with people like Max Middleton playing keyboards and Jan Hammer and Tony Hymas, guitar is not going to cut it. And so I took it upon myself to get really deep into guitar synthesizer. And he, this is how long ago, he faxed me a list of songs that he was thinking of doing. And uh, I, I just took it upon myself to learn the stuff and learn as much as I could and work on the sounds. I spent a lot of time trying to dial in the sounds. And at that time, I mean, synthesizer was so medieval. <laughs> you know, you had to grab a sound from a physical module and and tell string E that that's what the sound you want and then b and then g and then if you got it on all the strings and didn't like the sound you start over and and so i had two different modules and two different volume pedals to to blend sounds and it it was wow 
it, it was probably a really good thing for me because I was anxious about being in the band anyway. So it was a good distraction to, to have to really focus on that and come up with the goods. I had Tom Brislin, who is a keyboard player with uh, Boston. And we were talking about, you know, just the keyboard's role in the band. And I was telling him I used to play in a band before and I had to do that, exactly that. Be the guitar player, but also be the synth guitar player. And then I discovered, okay, I have two rigs. And, and, you know, of course, this was like later in in the 2000s or whatever. You have one rig for your synth, you know, and and then you have another rig for your guitar sounds. When you come to set up, you have double the time nearly because you're coming, you're setting up, you have more cables, you have all of these things. And I remember playing with that band for a couple of years and then I thought I I have enough now I don't want to do it anymore because you're learning the guitar parts and it's really interesting because when you learn synth playing when it comes to piano parts you have to learn to move your hands differently because of the slides the sounds that the strings make it's a it's a whole new experience isn't it it is and it was frustrating I mean for the most part I played pads so that was okay but there's for instance a song with Jeff called Savoy that was on the guitar shop record where there's horn stabs and I I really had to be on top of the beat to make them come out properly so that was a challenge and then I I think it was a, the second tour for You Had It Coming, where he wanted me to do a duet with him. Well, actually, there was three of us. The drummer, Steve Alexander, was playing keyboards behind us. But he wanted me to play a melody on flute. So, obviously, I'm triggering the flute sound. And it was the kind of thing where I would take the tremolo bar and do a bend, but it wouldn't just stay down. You couldn't control it like you could with a guitar. The sound would come back up. So, boy, I listened to it the other day, and it's it's pretty stiff, you know? <laughs> But you see, it's what you were dealing with at the time as well, because like you said, if you had more modern technology, you're you're thinking, first of all, I could have done it, you know, 10% of the time, but you also could have probably achieved better results and the notes would have been more fluid, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I often think back of all the money he spent taking my racks of gear around the world must have been enormous. And now if it was today... I would use the Fishman triple play and it's just everything's in your laptop that which you take on tour anyway. So, yeah, nowadays, I mean, you with, with synths, it's a lot easier. And, you know, even synth guitars and everything, it's a, it's a much different deal, isn't it? You know, and it's much faster triggering, too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And the problem, I think, through the ages of synth guitar playing is that things can go wrong. And then sometimes when they do go, go wrong, it's like they go wrong badly. So nowadays, I think you have a lot more stability. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember reading about uh, Jeff one time got into guitar synth and he said that the synthesizer was baking in the sun in Spain all day after sound check, and it just was playing all kinds of wrong sauce during the show. And that was the end of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was the end. You know, you've played, obviously, with lots of different artists. And I know, I know that you were playing with Britney Spears and that was kind of a last minute thing. Was that something that you could kind of go back to your experience of playing with Michael Jackson? Because I imagine, let's say, when you're playing with Jeff Beck and these bands who, I don't want to say they're more real, but they're more real in the moment because anything can happen, it can change. But when you play with them with other artists, there's a lot of, you know, maybe some sample tracks, backing tracks, and so on. So when you went to kind of play with Britney, you could call on a lot of that experience with Michael Jackson, no? Well, as it happened with Britney, I was the only real player. Um, Everything else was on tracks except my guitar. 
And so that was a, a bit daunting. And I remember looking out in the audience and seeing Aerosmith in the front row. And I was like, I do not want to see one more star. It's, it's nerve wracking. And it was one thing, they did call me the day before. And so I spent a lot of time getting repetitions in on the song to get comfortable with it. And then they wanted me to drive to Hollywood with my Michael Jackson clothes because they didn't have time to make anything for me. And then the next day, the choreographer got a hold of me and wanted to memorize a whole bunch of moves that it was actually kind of fascinating and frustrating because a lot of choreographers were doing choreography for videos. And you can fake playing when you're shooting a video. But when I have to play for real and make moves that are ridiculous, you know, the choreographer was frustrated with me. And I'm thinking, man, if you want real notes to come out, I can't do what you're asking me. So it it was a really high pressure gig. And a big moment for you, obviously, was the Super Bowl in 93, you know, playing with Michael Jackson in the Super Bowl. That that was a huge moment for you. And maybe during that moment when it happened, it was big. But I imagine the implications afterward when you realize how many people were watching is mind blowing. Yeah. And I had no idea un until afterwards, which was probably a good thing. And it was long before YouTube. So you know, nobody thought about it being archived. But I, I tell people that it's the only time in 10 years with Michael that I ever felt that he was nervous. He seemed really spacey. And I mean, the pressure, it, it's going to be live. If something screws up, there's no fixing it because the football game has to start again in five minutes. You know, <laughs> so for me, it was just sheer joy. I, it was super fun because it was different than anything we were doing on tour that we made medleys of songs to get more songs in. And it would only happen once. And then we were back on tour again. When you consider artists like Michael Jackson, so another one that's, let's say, like Ozzy Osbourne, you know, so with Zach Wilde and, you know, he, obviously Randy Rhodes was his player and then Zach Wilde was playing and then, you know, he different players. And so do you think that when it comes to being like a hired gun, you know, a mercenary guitar player for these big artists, when your time is coming to an end with that artist, like if, you know, if they're deciding, oh, I want to get somebody new, is that a hard moment or it's something that you see coming? You know, with Michael, I didn't think about it. I thought when the bad tour was over, I I thought he'd hire fresh faces for the next one. So I was kind of surprised when they called me for that. And then when they called me for history and, you know, I, I was actually at a long layover at Heathrow Airport doing some other stuff when I saw him come on TV and announce this is it. And, you know, by that time, I took it for granted. Of course, he's going to call me. And then he didn't. So, and you know, so many years had gone by. I, he got much younger dancers and a okay. guitar player that was half my age. So I, ultimately, I felt you know good for her. It's time for some new blood in that. Now with Jeff, it was a completely different thing where it was so intense working with him and took so much more out of us, um, writing and recording and going on the road. That I, I remember. There was a day where Randy, the bass player, and I were at Jeff's house talking about the future. And Randy basically said, we don't have any more to give, you know? And and I, I couldn't deny that either because I had given all that I had. I spent all my spare time writing for him. And it, it's really common at the end of a long tour that people are burnt out. And that's where a lot of artists will say that, that's it. I'm not touring anymore because you can't imagine 
doing it all again at that point because you need a lot of time to recover. And that was it. He, he did call me back to do, um, there was a career retrospective that they did at the Hollywood Bowl. It was his 50 years um, retrospective. And he called me to do that. That was 2016, wasn't it? Yeah. And ultimately I didn't play because he, long story, but he didn't really have a manager at that time and didn't realize that it was going to be a double bill with Buddy Guy and there was only so much time that they could play. So Okay. And then I think it was that same year, then you got inducted into the Guitar Player Magazine's Gallery of the Greats, which was another great achievement and everything. So, you you know, your career has taken you some, to some great highs, hasn't it? Yeah, I've been I've been really blessed. It's, you know, I don't look back that often. I'm always thinking, what's next? What's the next gig? But I'm starting to get at that age where I go, God damn, I was lucky. You know, they're played with the biggest pop star in the world. And in my mind, the best guitar player in history. So what's not to love about that? You just shoot me now. One thing I'm curious about, because, you know, I I, I was watching uh, some video on YouTube there recently, and uh, I think it was, you know, you know, that guy, Rick Beato, you know, that Rick Beato, you know, he does that. Sure. So he was saying that, you know, he says, when you're a guitar player or a musician, there's some chops that are harder to do as you get older. And for example, he was working on a Metallica song and he said, I can't downpick like I used to be able to downpick because, and he said, you'll find a lot of older guys, you know, it's harder to downpick. So Mm -hmm. for you, with your style of playing, because, you know, it's very dynamic, very fluid, very fast. Did you find over the last 20 years then that, you know, your body or your fingers have changed or what? what's different now as you get older with your guitar playing? Absolutely. I, I'm playing with a drummer now in a, a local cover band that used to be a trainer at the gym. And he was talking about as you get older, the, the muscles don't recover and the, the tendons don't recover as fast as they do when you're younger. And it makes sense. Yeah. And boy, I, that really slapped me upside the head when I, I decided I wanted to put out a video for the Giant Steps tapping solo that I had done in 92. And I, I wanted to do yeah, the video a couple yeah. years ago because it was never made into a video. And I could not do it. I could not play at the speed of the record. It was just insane. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's a drag that that happens. But you're forced to play less, which ultimately is harder because the, the notes that you choose have to mean more. I think for a lot of players, you know, they have those moments, but that they grow into it. You know, they grow into their older years in the sense that their cha- playing might change. I think for someone like maybe like Michelangelo Batten, that's more difficult because his his playing is very focused on the speed. But for you, when you used to do Flight of the Bumblebee, I mean, you know, a very technical song. Is that something then that you noticed as well over the years was harder to do? You know, I haven't attempted the song in a long time. And I decided at some point, because I used to start my solo shows and clinics with it, that I stopped terrifying myself with that song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and, I'm sure it happens to lots of people that they don't do songs, not just because they're bored of them, but because they're a lot of work. Yeah. And and once you've done a a song like that for years, and I probably did it for 20 years, like why keep doing it? You know, as a creative being, you want to, you want new stuff. That's what fires you up to still be excited about music. Like with your composing, how has that changed over the years then? You write songs that are different in the sense of maybe they're not as technical or they're more melodic. How has it changed? Well, I haven't written in quite a long time. Um, 
I just find the whole music industry super depressing. So the, the idea of putting out a new original record, you know, I put ten or $20,000 into a record that everybody can get for free. Is, what's the point? Uh, but the last record I did was written for Jeff. All the songs were written for Jeff when I was with him. And at that point, I was all three of my records are, are really different because there's years between them. But it was super inspired by electronica. He's the guy that turned me on to the Prodigy and Crystal Method and things that were really fresh at the time, almost 20 years ago. Um, and I saw how he recorded his last record, which was he had a, a drum programmer in one room and he and the producer, Andy Wright, were in another room. And the, the guy, the drummer would, would come up with a groove and send it across the hallway and then Jeff would just react to it. And the producer was really quick about hearing stuff in the improv that, okay, this is going to be the A section, this is going to be the B section. And he would chop it together that way. So I was really inspired by that and spent a ridiculous amount of money getting a Pro Tools system. You know, all, all the stuff you could put in a laptop for 10 bucks now was like $30,000 back then. <laughs> um, and then I did it that way. And for the solos on my last record, I just improvised. Uh, I set a loop up and improv for... I don't know, maybe five or 10 minutes. And then a, a 10 minute solo would take me two weeks to cut together. It was just awful. And, you know, I'd go, I like this riff and I like this riff. And then you put them together and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I would never put myself in that. A few years ago, I was recording some solos like that. I found, okay, I was like comping them and splicing them. And then, but then I was, okay, it's actually quicker to just learn all those bits, put it together and do the take as good as you can, you know. But everyone has different ways of doing it. But like you said, comping and editing, it takes time too. Oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm glad I did it, but I would never want to do it that way again. I, there's more to be said. Like when Jeff would do a solo, it's first take. First take, second take, because that's where the inspiration is. And then you start second guessing yourself and judging yourself. And I remember one of my favorite interviews of all time was with Bjork. And she was talking about all the time, like 99% of the time was spent getting the tracks where she really liked them. And then the vocals were first take. And I thought that was great. Just like everything's in place and soar over it and just hit record and go. Like, I think what it is, if you have a great track down, you can see sometimes some musicians get real inspiration from it and they can just do their work quickly because the, the, the foundation is really there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're inspired, look out. Just get out of the way and go. Yeah, you can do it. When you look now at modern players, because my kind of view of there's some amazing modern players and they're like you see some people and they're like virtuosos and you have bands like Polyphia and these. But what I notice is that yeah. because the modern production methods are so clean that even now you see people and it, they're playing live, but it has the sound of recorded uh, things. So what I think is happening a lot, they have these things that they know they're going to play it live on YouTube, but if it worked out to death, they know it like inside out and then they play it live and they're amazing players. But you, you know, sometimes they're playing along to tracks. There's a lot more trickery than just picking up the guitar and playing over a backing track. So things nowadays can be made to seem unbelievable. Yeah, well, they are. I mean, so, some of the, those guys you were talking about, it's just some of it sounds like video game music, you know, it's, it's sounds coming from the left sounds yeah. coming to the right. And, it, and it's like 
fireworks, like, like, bam, 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 all this fresh, never quite heard before. And it's, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's just a new generation of sounds and it's, it's more about sonic splashes than what we grew up with. So who knows if that'll hold the future. I saw an, an interview recently with the Megadeth guitarist, now Kiko Lerero, and he was saying, he said one thing he heard somebody else saying, and it was a, it's a very interesting concept is a lot of new guitar players are in this kind of, you know, the, the, like when they were talking about the boomer bends and they're in this thing like of denial where if there's so much music gone before us that if we just keep relearning this, we're going to put out music that's similar. So I think a lot of what a new guitar players are doing is trying to do stuff that maybe hasn't been done whether it's good or bad. So that's the good point about it. But like I was saying, the production values and the thing, sometimes it's a bit unreal. You know what? I, I think it also reflects the age that we're in of the short attention span where, you know, you're on TikTok and you're swiping every 10 seconds and you don't want to hear a four minute song. You want to hear 30 seconds and on to the next guy. And so the solos reflect that, you know, it's also kind of meant so that you, you don't want to scroll. <laughs> Yes, yeah, of course, of course. And I wanted to ask you there, just, you know, we're talking about guitar playing that way, with your gear, because I know you were uh, mainly playing Washburn still, I think, and you were playing Ibanez for a while, and I know you actually, I have one of them there, where you had a Variax as well, you were you were playing a, a, a Variax for a while, so has that been a kind of um, a journey in itself, just different guitars and different gear over the years? I don't, I don't change up that much. Um, I got into the Variax because I got interested in acoustic and I was never playing locally and I couldn't take two guitars with me unless it was a big tour. Uh, so I, the Variax intrigued me because you can push a button and have any pre-programmed tuning that you want and uh, an acoustic simulation. So I, I did that for a couple of years. And I also like the fact that uh, anybody that's played guitar, especially a Strat, there's going to be some club that has a shitty electric in it, and you're going to get a ground buzz that you can't get rid of. So in that case, you can switch over to the virtual pickups, and it's quiet. Yeah. So that was very intriguing. But that only lasted a couple of years, and then my guy at Washburn asked me to come back, and I did. And changing guitars was basically a result of them having a new model that they wanted to push. And I'd be like, oh, I like the old model. But it's been very lucky in that, uh, when they send me a guitar, I almost always love the feel of it. And that's hugely important, as well as the weight of it. I hate heavy guitars. It's just horrible. <clears throat> so, yeah, I've, I've been using their Parallax model, um, PXM10, I think it is. I, I don't retain numbers that well. But I've been using that for, I want to say, seven years now. And I love it. It's 24 frets, and that took a while to get used to. And, and they stopped making them. So, damn it. I don't know what's next. And and then as regards, you know, pedals, are you using multi-effects? Or are you using like a rack of pedals or rack units? What do you use mainly now? I've been using multi-effect <coughs> units for many years. And I, I did a lot of touring for Digitech. Uh, anytime they had something new come out, I'd especially in Germany, I'd go for 30 days, 30 cities and show the whammy or show uh, the R RP models that they had for a long time. And it, I got so used to that. I was using the RP 1000 for many years. That was the last multi-effects unit that they used. Um, I, and I was using the internal models, which I didn't love, but I was working for them. And then Thomas Blug came out with the amp one. He, he engineered for 
he was in Kettner for many years, and he came up with this incredible dream for any guitar player, especially if they travel. That's a 100-watt, four-channel analog, essentially Marshall, that you could put in your carry-on. And once that happened, my sound super improved, and I started using the four-cable method to use the effects that were in the Digitech. And I have certain sounds in there that I could not replicate with anything else. But technology has advanced so much since then that I'm now using the Line 6 um, HX, HX Stomp XL. HX, a great pedal. Yeah, I, I still can't replicate a, sub, a couple sounds that, that I had in the Digitech, but I, and it took me really two years to finally commit to it. But that's what I'm using now, and it, it's incredible because I have it set up where I, I have added a MIDI switcher, so I can switch the line six and it will also switch the the amp channels for me and every preset that i switch into becomes a pedal board in itself so once i'm in that i can kick on and off different um, effects as i choose or there's certain things that i've, I've programmed the expression pedal to change with my foot that um and there's no going back because now i have that freedom of doing anything i want that's the great thing about, like, I still have that Variax for years now, and I kind of bought it for recording like that, different sounds. But I found then I bought one of the, the, the pod pedals, and then I realized I was able to change the Variax sounds, not from the guitar, but from the pedal. And that was brilliant because you could change tunings on the fly. Ah. And, you know, I was playing, I think, in, in some cover bands and wedding stuff and functions and stuff. You do all different types of music. It was great because you can go from different sounds, change tunings, acoustic stuff. And it's just you have your guitar, your pedal, whatever amp you're using. And sometimes I wouldn't use an amp. I'd go into the system, but I'd be using a, a, a cab simulator. So it, it, the technology has really come a long way. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal what's happening now. But e even at that, I'm... I'm always thinking that I need something that hasn't been invented yet. You know, like like I was fantasizing about this amp for 10 years before it was ever invented because I was always paying excess luggage charges, taking so much crap across the ocean to, to play. And I, honestly, I was at Thomas Blug's house. Um, I didn't even know th that he was a, an inventor. I just knew him from from trade shows as a great player and ended up befriending him, ended up at his house and he immediately plugged me into his amp and I go, I want to buy it immediately. And it was a torturous six months to a year before it was actually ready for sale. And I think I'm, I was his first customer and I've been with him ever since. And now he's got a new thing coming out that I'm really, really intrigued with because he also has a a thing called a blue box that's a speaker emulator that has 16 different IRs in it. Plus, it has a virtual mic placement knob. So um, I've taken that on a, a bunch of tours. It, you know, if you're on a crap tour and you, it, it happens time to time, oh, we didn't get the message, you need a speaker. Well, I can't put a speaker in my carry-on. You know, what do you think? I'm not from this country. <laughs> I saw there recently where um, IK Multimedia with their Amplitude software, but they have developed this new thing similar to the Kemper kind of thing where it models the sounds, but it's a much cheaper alternative to that. And it's supposed to model them very well, your guitar setup. So, I mean, the technology is really good now. And, and then as well, you know, you talk to lots of guitar players and kind of playing on local scenes and everything. And a lot of people are buying these Boss Katanas and everything. So sometimes you get a guitar amp that kind of cuts through 
and for the price of it and the durability and what it offers, it becomes very popular, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got tired of lugging big things. Yeah, after that hernia operation, I was completely over it. But, you know, <laughs> it took years for to catch up. <laughs> yeah. Just want to kind of ask you, you know, going forward, I know you're doing instructional videos and, and you know, clinics and you're, you're doing teaching and stuff still. So for you, what does the future hold now as regards like playing live and as, you know, new albums and stuff? Because I know you said it's a kind of hard to release the way the modern music market is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm focused on is is developing more instructional stuff because people still have to pay for that <laughs> for uh, truefire.com. So I, I hope to record more at the end of the year. I've got three courses out, but it's been seven years since I put anything new out. Uh, there's all kinds of projects that come up that I, I couldn't even tell you what I'm doing in a year. Um, I do have a project brewing in my mind that is so fresh. I don't even want to talk about it, but um, you know, it's, it's like the more that I wish to not be traveling, the more I will be traveling. So <laughs> just go to my website. Every, every date that is confirmed is put there as soon as the contract is signed. There's, there's only a few things now, but there, in the next month, there'll be a lot more. Well, listen, you know, Jennifer, it's been wonderful talking to you. And, uh, you know, it's nice to sometimes even talk about technical things, you know, because sometimes you're ta I'm talking to singers and other musicians, but then it's not, they're not maybe guitar players. So it's nice to sit down with a fellow guitar player and talk some technical jargon and talk about your own experience of that. Um, and I want to, you know, say well done in your career so far. And, you know, I, I've always been a fan of your, your music and what you've done in your career. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you are an inspiration. So keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Jennifer Batten, everybody. Okay, thank you very much, Jennifer Batten. It was a pleasure to talk to you and some amazing guitar playing skills we've witnessed from you over the years. And we just like to say well done on your career. And you're an amazing player and you've done so much for guitar playing for women, let alone guitar playing in general. So we want to thank you for that. And I've watched you over the years and I can say you're a fabulous player and keep up the good work. So Jennifer Batten, everybody. Okay, everybody, thank you very much. I hope you're enjoying the content. I hope you're enjoying the show. And I hope you keep coming back for more because we have lots of great content for you coming over the next season. And we aim to please. We're going to bring the best guests for you. So tell your friends. And until the next time, my name is Simon K. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast. Look after your friends and family. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>